0: This is a document of the 1960s, of political trial and tribulation, of ordinary people caught up in the great events, thereby themselves becoming the greater.
1: No volverás del fondo de las rocas. No volverás del tiempo subterráneo. No volverás tu voz endurecida. No volverán tus ojos taladrados. Yo vengo a hablar por vuestra boca muerta...
0: This is the story of Pat Pottle, who grew up in an Irish immigrant community in Paddington, London, just there behind the railway station, a traditional settling place for Irish labour. It's also the story of the English radical tradition and what it produces when fused with Irish republicanism. To declare an interest and to put in context the voices you will hear, In 1984, I made a radio documentary for RT called A Death in January about Sean Burke, who engineered the escape from Wormwood Scrubs Jail of the KGB agent George Blake. Two others involved and crucial to that escape were Michael Randall and Pat Pottle. They had been in the Scrubs at the same time as Burke and Blake because they had illegally demonstrated against the military oppression in Greece and against the sighting, of American nuclear bases in Britain. I could not name them in the documentary because they had receded by then into the background and resumed their civilian lives. When their identities were revealed in 1989, they responded by writing a book which accounted for their part in the escape. Publication provoked over 100 Tory MPs to sign a House of Commons motion that they be prosecuted for an event which had taken place 24 years before. In what became a major legal watershed, Randall and Pottle defended themselves and asked the jury to find them not guilty, even though they admitted the offence of helping George Blake escape. Simply put, they asked the jury not to convict them because what they had done had been done, as they saw it, for humanitarian motives. They were acquitted. Pat returned to Wales with his wife Sue and adolescent sons. He died in November of last year. At his memorial service in Conway Hall earlier this year, there was a celebratory gathering of 60s activists, mostly now grey and more than middle-aged, but still energised with that radical fervour that had helped change British and American politics. Among the gathering, his brother Brian, his widow Sue, and his colleague Michael Randall. In a moving chorus of closure, they sang the songs that had once moved them to risk their future, that others might have a future. And I set about finding out just what had made Pat Potter.
2: I'd heard his name on the radio um, when I was still at school, I think, because he'd been um, um, arrested in China and deported, um, and he was a sort of folk hero of the peace movement. He'd been in prison um, in 1961 um, for um, his part in the Wethersfield demonstration, he and Michael Randall and three other people. Um, And so his his name was, although when I joined the peace movement, he wasn't very active in it, um, his name was Legion, I suppose. (laughs) Folk music was very important to me. I got involved really in radical politics first through the folk scene, um, listening to Pete Seeger, for instance, in his very moving, We Shall Overcome from the Carnegie Hall, which was one of the most moving performances I've ever heard. And uh, that was for the American Civil Rights Movement, but but it all sort of gelled together. And the whole movement in the early and mid 60s was was very influenced by the american civil rights movement we wanted a change i mean you know you'd see all these fuddy-duddies led by harold Macmillan and lord hume and it seemed to be a tory run britain although i think labor were very likely in by um 1965 or thereabouts um but it still seemed a very conservative country <laughs> and um i wanted a change it was definitely wanted a change i mean the nuclear weapons had had a horrifying effect on all of us. And the non-violent peace movement, direct action movement, had started in the early 50s, when I was much too young to take part. Um, but that, that you know, had an immense influence as well on all of us.
3: And as a committee of 100 activists, as well as the secretary of Bertrand Russell, um, he made it clear that he was against bureaucracies, authorities, uh, uh, what, what he would describe as enemies of, uh, of, uh, of humanity, really, certainly by definition then they became more sort of the right-wing regimes around the world as well as uh, the military, if you like, uh, um, in Britain, but also against any authoritarian regime at all, for example. He was kicked out of many countries. He was kicked out of Greece by organizing uh, demonstrations against the colonels who committed in that coup in the 19 late 1960s, early 70s. Um, Equally, he was kicked out of China for uh, demonstrating there against authoritarianism and the build-up of of its uh, country's weapons. And he was described in China as a kind of a a running dog, lickspittle you know, running dog of capitalism. This is Pat Pottle, you know, as much as uh, the Chinese would describe imperialists as being. In fact, I think the Chinese did describe Pat as he wants as imperialists, which, of course, is complete rubbish. But Pat, you know, would sit down and question and uh, deal in non-violent direct action in China and in Greece, as, indeed, he did in Britain.
2: I met him at, at a dinner party given by Michael Randall, um, who'd invited me there um, to meet Pat, as far as I knew, and I thought to organise a demonstration about the Greek colonel's takeover. Um, but when I got there, they said, well, you look as though you're going to prison, um, because I was org- I've worked for the London Committee of 100 and was organising a march of shame for the Vietnam War, and they thought I was going to be arrested for sedition, and so they thought I'd go to Holloway. And they said, well, we, we've just broken someone out of prison. And I said... What, one of the great train robbers, and they said, no, George Blake. <laughs> so anyhow, they then told me all about the escape and they, they were on a real high because it was about four months after George, had le- George and Sean Burke had left the country. And um, they thought they'd like to um, break um, Helen Kroger out of Holloway if I was going there and I could chat her up and things. But anyhow, I never went to prison, but I married Pat instead. <laughs> Pat and I did actually become involved um, in the a uh, 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 demonstration against the greek um colonels when they took over organizing a demonstration into the greek embassy um in which um i couldn't i couldn't take part because it was the same weekend as our march of shame and uh i couldn't obviously afford to get arrested pat went on it and we'd been told that um you couldn't be arrested because it was foreign territory and they'd all just be thrown out but when they When they threw them out, they arrested all of them. Um, But Pat managed to escape from the back of a um, police van and run away, along with everyone else in the van, except for one person who was a bit lame. And um, everyone else was put on trial. So Pat and I um, basically ran a a group to support the people who were on trial. And we did that for the next few months. But um, I think I met Pat in april or march and we were married on the 30th of june so it's very quick really.
3: i think he got it from his roots in a way i mean he would say he'd get it from his irish mother but he got it also from a sort of father who uh or part of it from a father who was uh committed trade unionist. again his own man i think his father and indeed his irish mother clearly had a strong character and uh, and his early upbringing i think but i mean all Although his, you know, his, his large, the large family, his different brothers were, were all, you know, rather different people. Um, Pat, as I say, was his own man. I think, yeah, there was something there, maybe partly coming out of his, you know, obviously, but it was genes or whatever from his, from his, from his parents in different ways, um, which, which had this quality of he just would not put up with, you know, authoritarianism. Uh, with with bureaucracies, even small bureaucracies, let alone a large military-industrial complex, or the nuclear powers, or the nuclear issue, or people promoting nuclear um, weapons. Really, once he had gone into the air force,
4: um, and he then became very, very aware of the dangers of of, of the H bomb and the way in which politics were going generally in the world, and he felt at that point then he had to make a stand. And even when he was in the air force. He participated in marches against the bomb, um, organised groups against the bomb and became very active within the, within the peace movement.
2: His mother was an Irish Catholic and his father was a communist and he had four brothers, three of, one of them a twin and three of them obviously older um, and all of the older brothers, or I think, were involved in fairly um, radical sort of or communist party things, and um his his father had been a shop steward, and I f- believe he told me his parents had met on the um uh, march you know the hunger march in the thirties um, so i obviously he got it from his family his, his 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 whole his family had been radical for a long time. He always told me that beds in prison were called pottle beds, and that one of his family had been involved in um getting beaches made public and had gone to prison for it years ago. It's not changed that
4: much. The houses are still the same as they were, the school is still there as it was. We were born at number 36 for Street, further down the road there. When we came back from being evacuated after, uh, during the war, this was our... Pat and I, this was our first school that we went to, Sherland Road there. Uh, just leading off on the right there is Bristol Gardens, and I had two of my mother's sisters. Uh, Auntie Molly, who came back from America just after the war, had a little flat there, and Auntie Peg was up the other end. So mum's two sisters were quite close to us here when we lived here. Um, and I have wonderful memories here. We had a, a wonderful, wonderful childhood, um, a close family childhood with our family around us the whole time. Um, but we were all of us, uh, that's, that's seven of us, in two rooms here in a basement right at the other end where we were born. Um, So it was very confined and we were very, very much living on top of each other, Um, but still it was a wonderful childhood. As you know, I was christened Brian Patrick Pottle and he was christened Patrick Brian Pottle. So that that caused confusion, first with the tax people, which we were very happy to cause the confusion, but later on with the Air Force, so uh, they thought they thought Pat was in the Air Force, uh, but it was I, I went in nine months before him and they didn't realise that there was another one with a, a turned-around name that hadn't in, yet, hadn't in fact been in. So Pat came in nine months after I did, and at that point you could claim a relative. If you had a relative that was already in the forces, he could claim a close relative that came in. So I claimed Pat, and Pat was then transferred to RAF Uxbridge with, with me and we came home every night on the underground we still had we still had as you say mammy's dinners um and we're still very very close to the family so we never really lost that contact at all
2: to start with we were in london i was working separately doing secretarial work and working for the london committee still and pat had his own printing business um then we moved down to wales and um i i had two children we had two, two children And while I was doing that, I was also doing some work for Pat's printing business, which he'd set up another one in Wales. And um, then we started doing antiques together. And we did that for about 10 years down there and another 10 in London.
5: I first met him um, back in 1961, when uh, we were both involved in the Committee 100. Um, I was secretary of the Committee 100 uh, when it was first started and for the first year or more. Um, And when uh, about half the committee were arrested back in September of 1961, uh, Pat took over as the um, acting secretary of the committee. Um, And so I met him round about that time, and he was very actively involved from then on, um, until we, we, we ended up here at the Old Bailey and then in, in prison together.
3: This is uh, the trial of uh, Pat Pottle who defended himself and others in 1961 um, in the Old Bailey in London where they were prosecuted under the Official Seekers Act for entering a US Air Force base in Essex and they were subsequently uh, uh, sentenced and were jailed in Wormwood Scrubs where they first met George Blake. So, this is 1961 in the Old Bailey. It's an exchange between Pat and the Chief Prosecution Witness, one Air Commodore McGill, who was Director of Operations at the British Air Ministry. So Pat asked him, ''Air Commodore, is there any official order you cannot accept?'' Mr Justice Havers, the trial judge, said, ''Is there what?'' ''Pottle, is there any official order from the government where the Air Commodore would say to himself, ''I accept orders, I'm a servant of the government, but on this particular occasion I cannot accept this order?'' Havers, the judge. He is an officer in the forces of Her Majesty. Pottle, so actually there is no order you would not accept. Air Commodore McGill, it is my duty to carry out any order given to me. Pottle, would you press the button that you know is going to annihilate millions of people? McGill, if the circumstances so demanded, it, I would. Pottle, Air Commodore, do you agree with this statement? We must not forget that by creating atomic bases in East Anglia... We have made ourselves the target and perhaps the bullseye of a Soviet attack. Havers, the judge. Don't answer that. I rule it out. Pottle. That was a statement of Sir Winston Churchill. Havers. You must not tell us whose statement it was. Pat went on. Do you agree with a statement made by Mr. Duncan Sands in 1957 when he was Minister of Defence, when he said bases cannot defend people? Havers. You cannot ask that. Pottle, you have said, Herr Commodore, you'd accept any order from the state, any order that was given to you. It would be your duty to carry this out. Adolf Eichmann's defense, Havers. It is no good reverting to the Eichmann trial. You cannot mention him in this case. Pottle, would you consider a Soviet attack on Britain in the interests of the Soviet state? Havers, the judge. Don't answer that. You know, Pottle, I've tried to give you a broad indication of the things you ought not to do. You do not seem to be paying the slightest attention to what I have said. You are going on asking these questions as if I had not said it. Pat persisted. In 1945, Air Commodore, men were put on trial at Nuremberg. Havers, a judge, Where are you going to now? You're at Nuremberg now, are you? Pottle, yes. Havers, you have to leave Nuremberg. Finally, an exasperated attorney general, one Manningham Buller, who was sometimes called Bullying Manor, uh, by the press at the time, he intervened, the attorney general. This is really a deliberate disobedience of your lordship's ruling. And the judge says i have given you every latitude but there's a limit to what i shall allow you to do i shall ask you to sit down in a moment that's effectively put pat's cross-questioning of the air commodore to an end
5: um the third time pat and i were in the old bailey together when we were charged um, for helping george blake to escape from wormwood scrubs
6: early on i met bet portal and and michael randall and we got on very well and because uh, there was something we had in common it was that they were prosecuted under the Official Secrets Act as I was they were um, um, prosecuted by the Attorney General uh, Manningham Buller as I was they had I think Hutchinson as their defense as I had and of course uh, they looked upon me as an ideological prisoner although um, they didn't share um, communist views um, but that they had a certain sympathy for me that was clear from the beginning Um, but the interesting thing is and the, the very important thing is because maybe i wouldn't have thought about them was that they themselves on one of the last occasions that we met just when they were about to be released. uh, They said to me, if ever you think of escaping, we uh, are willing to help you if we can. And that gave me, of course, a very important um, support because they were absolutely the ideal people. They were people of very high moral standards. They were people uh, who had uh, considerable possibilities because they had this whole network of of sympathizers, of people who felt like them, who looked. uh, And people who had mostly left-wing views, although they weren't communists, although among them probably were also a number of communists. Um, And uh, we knew each other and we liked each other and then uh, after that but of course i didn't have any plans and they didn't have any plans We, we didn't know where to start and so they left and they sent me occasionally on christmas they send me a christmas card just to remind them remind me of them uh and then my um my job became uh, looking for somebody who could act as a go-between me and them and that's what i then did for some time and that is when about a year before the escape a year before the escape uh, i sort of
0: The rest, as they say, is history. Blake was hidden out in Pat Pottle's Hampstead flat and months later smuggled to Checkpoint Charlie in Berlin, lying under the bed of a camper van driven by Michael Randall. Sean Burke followed but became disillusioned in Moscow, returned to Ireland and in 1970 published a book which was to disturb the peace of his former colleagues.
2: We were living in Wales at the time and I think it was... uh beginning of the 70s so we had two very small children and we were very very worried obviously I drove up to London and we didn't like to order a copy of a book so I drove up to London and bought one in WH Smith or somewhere and came back to Wales and we read it through and uh, we we just waited really for the police to arrest Pat and Michael we couldn't believe that um, having called them Pat Porter and Michael Reynolds that they wouldn't be arrested and giving a very good description of them um, we burnt the book and sat there waiting for a <laughs> police. E- every time Sean said something, we were terrified. Uh, we, for the next, Until he died, really, we, we were just... Um, we All the time we thought, <laughs> they must come, you know, they must know. And, of course, they did, <laughs> it t- as it turned out.
3: They agonised a bit more and, anyway, they agreed to write their own book and admit uh, their role in the Blake escape. Um, then, what happened? I mean, I remember, at the time, uh, there was a lot of... I mean, I couldn't really believe that they would try these people, you know, 30 years after the event, really. Um, but there's a Tory administration in Britain, which made, which made a difference. I think the Tory ministers were sort of... were embarrassed, were pushed, really. Over 100 Tory MPs signed a motion saying, this is outrageous, these traitors should be tried as traitors, and so on. And so... Forth. Uh, so Indeed, they were prosecuted.
2: Eventually they were told, well, can you come down for another interview? And they went down to the police, I think it was um, Holborn Police Station at that time. And when they got there, they were charged. Rather, They didn't expect to be. They had taken their solicitor with them. And while they were down there, um, about 30 policemen turned up at our house um, and uh, raided it. Well, by, they brought Pat back for that. But um, I, I turned up at the house and saw these sort of ominous looking men lurking around in plain clothes on the corner and went in and found my son sitting there and I said how did you get in Julian he said oh I climbed in through the window and I said but there's two or three policemen outside didn't they say anything no he said (laughs) so we said look we've put everything in the everything you might need is piled up in that room because we've always expected you might come and um, search it so we've put everything likely in that room. And uh, they weren't really interested in what we'd piled up. They were convinced there must be something hidden somewhere, and they took away all the manuscripts of a the book. They must have taken away about twenty different manuscripts of a book. <laughs> Just ludicrous. I mean, they took away things like my, um, um, you know, employment card from um, not that year, which had the the address in Willow Road where Pat had hidden um, Sean, where <laughs> and, and George.
3: Pat uh, Potters and Michael Reynolds' lawyers managed to get out of MI Five, the British Security Service, and British police. Special Branch, which also showed that they knew pretty soon after the Blake escape that Pottle and Randall had been involved. Uh, mm-hmm. This admission subsequently gave uh, Pat and Michael at the actual trial in the Old Bailey uh, some weapons. Um, they defended themselves at the trial. They could show that uh, this was really an abuse, or they argued this was an abuse of process, that the Special Branch knew that all along it was um, they, they were involved decided to do nothing about it because they were regarded as I think, I think one of the police supports, actually which came out in the pre-trial hearing described them as uh, as rather nice people who who are now being very peaceful people you know and they weren't they weren't uh, you know they weren't criminals at all and they were um, no threat to society certainly and that's what the police and, and, and the British Security Service themselves admitting so they let sort of sleeping dogs lie as it were but but, but as a result of this political pressure uh, the, the trial opened the old Bailey in ninety one uh, with as they say Pat Potter Michael Randall defending themselves. But Pat was astonishing in the Dock. I mean, his presence, I mean, he's much physically a bigger man than Michael. Uh, he, 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 as I say, he would roll up his sleeves and his sort of hairy arms come out. He, he he would be an impressive and almost inspiring, you know, inspiring figure really in the Dock. Apparently completely confident, you know, his sort of black hair over his forehead, his sort of beard, sort of shimmering. A bit. And um, he was a tremendous presence. And... Certainly, the prosecution lawyer, Barrister, did not know quite how to handle him, and nor, indeed, did the judge. And uh, he would ask questions persistently, even if the judge would say, you can't order, this is out of order, this is uh, completely irrelevant. Pat would just continue and ask the question to the witnesses, some of whom were actually quite sympathetic, including an old screw, an old prison guard from... Wormwood Scrubs, who they knew some time before, who, when he, this prison guard came out of the dock after being questioned, the witness box, I should say, having been questioned by Pat in the dock, gave Pat and Michael a great thumbs up in front of the jury, too, and the jury saw this. I guess the prison guard knew what he was doing, which showed the kind of humanity, really, and the kind of sense of humanity that Pat inspired, even among the former prison guard. So Pat stood up from the dock and told the jury, this is the only opportunity I have of speaking directly to you. Sitting in the jury box must be boring and frustrating. If it's any consolation to you, I can assure you it'd be sitting in the dock. Let's open the windows, let the fresh air in, and blow away the cobwebs. Let common sense for once be champion over legal technicalities. This prosecution has come about because 110 MPs signed a motion calling for our prosecution... We do not deny the things we are accused of doing. Not only do we not deny it, we say it was the right thing to do. Your task would be a lot easier if this were a simple case of guilt or innocence. But it is not. It is a case of right and wrong. It is a case of politics, a case of how governments lie, cheat and manipulate and then cover their tracks in a smokescreen of official secrecy. This is not just a case of a man given an inhuman sentence and of us freeing him. This is a political trial. A political decision was taken in 1970 not to prosecute. When we were publicly named in 1987, it came as no surprise to the police. They had known since 1970. The accepted theory about George Blake's escape was that it was organised and carried out by agents of the KGB. It was better that the world continued to believe that the whole thing was organised by the KGB rather than the Lavender Hill mob. The judge has ruled our reasons for freeing George to be irrelevant, in law, he says, these people have no defense. You have no choice but to find them guilty. I disagree with the judge. The idea of a jury system is that you can look at the whole case, not just a legal mumbo-jumbo. You are 12 independent people. Unlike most judges, you exist in the ordinary world of everyday life. You're able to use your common sense and humanity and not have your hands and minds tied by legal technicalities. Common sense must tell you that our reasons for hoping to free George from prison must be relevant. He ended up by sort of banging the side of the dock, and they were surrounded by two police guards, of course, pointing down to the cellar steps, saying, this is people like us. We weren't really talking about himself, but talking about the principal, people like us. Do You want to go down there in the smelly sewer of a cell uh, for doing what we think is right. Not in the kind of, you know, evangelical sense, like maybe a preacher would do. But in a kind of down-to-earth, very down-to-earth way, and it was a really a breathtaking find. You know, I was just a reporter then, but it's, it was it was difficult not to kind of you know feel emotional, to be honest, at that point. For the, I would say the correct reasons. Now the jury, we thought, was going to be pretty. Uh, We're definitely going to put them down, to be honest, because. You know, this is a terrible stereotyping, but the, the foreman, we saw a ter- person who turned out to be the foreman who wore a sort of leather bomber jacket with a sun newspaper stuffed into his pocket every day. And, and, and the jury, was, throughout the time, had been pretty sort of impassive, really, to be honest. But um, we were completely wrong. And they acquitted, as we know, Pat and Michael, for the reason that some people used to say it was because it, the British people, it's not a question of right-wing or left-wing, or ideology of any kind it's just they smell oppression and Pat and Michael were being oppressed by the state and that's what I think the jury felt and that was very appropriate too because of course Pat as I say it wasn't a question of right-wing or left-wing with him it was just oppression by the state anyway applause in the gallery and so on and so forth and I remember and they really did think they were going to go down and uh, down to the scrubs again or uh, some other prison Because uh, Pat took an enormous, uh, or prepared that morning, uh, rather a large tin, not enormous, a large tin of of, uh, tobacco. Of course, Michael Randall took uh, one of my copies of Ulysses by James Joyce, actually, because he thought, that's one of my best books. So that that was also, showed up the difference, I think, between the two.
2: We thought Pat would actually get a reasonably long sentence. We never expected that he'd be found not guilty. And we thought, well, you know, if he's going to be on trial and if we're going to be under all this stress, um, we've got to try and sort of enjoy ourselves and sort of have a reasonable time, you know, party if you like. <laughs> and that's what we did. In fact, we, we were very unstressed about it and quite happy in a way. I mean, obviously it was pressure, but um, it was much less than if we'd sat there and worried about it. <laughs> After all, I mean, life's short, isn't it? We don't want to be so miserable for five years or something. I mean, had he gone to prison, then I could have been miserable, combined, he could have been miserable. But while we are actually waiting to go, there's no point making it even longer by being miserable while you're waiting to go. I think he was just starting his A level, so he'd have been about 16, 17. And I can remember either a policeman raiding the house or a journalist saying to him, um, isn't this embarrassing for you at school, Casper? And he said, no, I'm a hero. <laughs> so I think it was, you know, maybe we lived in the right area. And um, I, I, I don't think it caused him any upset at all. I can remember my younger son um, playing in football matches and the um, when it was his turn to do the wash, um, clothes you know bring them home for mum to wash the um, teacher would say oh no I'll take them and Julian your mum's got enough to do
4: (laughs) he came home as a hero Uh, 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 he was welcomed home by all of us Uh, we were all very very proud of what he did and and certainly mother and father were extremely proud of what he did dad took it very much in his stride dad had himself been in prison in the first world war as a conscientious objector Interestingly enough, not on religious grounds, but on political grounds, he felt that the war, the First World War had nothing to do with him as a working-class man. It was a war between kings, and he didn't enter into that battle at all. So, yes, he went to prison. So he was used to that, uh, the idea that one went to prison for principles. Um, and I think Mother, as well, was very up here, having, having seen what had happened in her childhood in Ireland in her youth in Ireland, was aware of the fact that you had to stand up against what was going
1: on. Where were you at the time of the crime? Down by the cenotaph, drinking slime. So, chain my tongue with whiskey, stuff my nose with garlic, coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam.
2: In his last years, you put your he was...
1: You put your
2: he was happy, basically. Um, Take
1: the human being.
2: He obviously wasn't too well women, um, but he didn't know he was that ill, you know and so he had actually he still had a, a joy de vivre, you know he still enjoyed going to the cinema, one of his great loves, and going out to dinner and talking to friends. We shall
4: come We shall. Overcome.
2: Everyone's told me how um how they enjoyed it. I suppose I I felt it was meant to be a party, really, because when we left London a year ago and moved to Wales, um, we hadn't been able to have a party because Pat wasn't too well, and. um, So the memorial service was a sort of party for leaving London. We had lots and lots of friends there that um, the singing of um, We Shall Overcome Again and um, all the sort of moving peace movement sort of songs we sang, Adrian Mitchell reading a poem about Vietnam or about war um, and um, all his friends talking about him. It was very, very moving. And enjoyable. I do,
4: I do believe we shall overcome someday. We shall someday. we shall live in peace. We
5: shall live. At Pass Memorial Service we had uh, an amazing range of people uh, res- talking about Pat, his, his, his twin brother in particular was, was talking about his early life um, and people who had known him in different contexts. And we had uh, people singing. We had Adrian Mitchell, the poet reciting what was one of Pat's favorite poems. He'd actually heard Adrian Mitchell recite this poem at an anti-Vietnam demonstration back in the 60s tell me lies about vietnam a very moving
6: poem we
1: shall i was run over by the truth one day ever since the accident i've walked this way so stick my legs in plaster tell me lies about vietnam i heard the alarm clock screaming with pain couldn't find myself, so I went back to sleep again. So fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. Every time I shut my eyes, all I see is flames. I made a marble phone book, and I carved all the names. So coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. I smell something burning, hope it's just my brains. They're only dropping peppermints and daisy chains. So stuff my nose with garlic, coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. Where were you at the time of the crime? Down by the cenotaph, drinking slime. So chain my tongue with whiskey. Stuff my nose with garlic, coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam. You put your bombers in, you put your conscience out, you take the human being and you twist it all about. So scrub my skin with women, chain my tongue with whiskey, stuff my nose with garlic, Coat my eyes with butter, fill my ears with silver, stick my legs in plaster, tell me lies about Vietnam.